Good morning. Uh, this is Marlene Tadros. My guest today is Dr. Nizar Sayad, renowned uh, architect, planner, urban historian, and public intellectual. He is an emeritus professor of architecture and planning at the University of California at Berkeley, where he was faculty director of the Center of Arab Societies and Environment Studies and chair of the Center for Middle Eastern Studies for over two decades. Uh, Dr. Sayad holds a BS in Architectural Engineering and Diploma in Town Planning from Cairo University, an MS in Architecture from MIT, and a PhD in Architectural History from UC Berkeley. He is the author and editor of many books on architecture, some of which we will discuss in this episode. Uh, his books have been translated to six languages and he has won several awards. Uh, Dr. Sayad, welcome. Thank you, Marlene. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, so this is our English edition, but I think we will talk about some of the similar stuff in the Arabic edition and some stuff that is different. Yes. Now, the question I must ask is, how do you make architecture so engaging? It includes history, it includes uh, politics, it includes sociology. Well, you know, it's very, it's very interesting that you ask this question because I, I'm not really sure that at this very specific moment in uh, academic discourse, that what I do is fundamentally different than what many of my colleagues do. Uh, Winston Churchill once said, uh, we make our cities and they make us in return. And I think it's that very specific connection, if you will, between human beings and the, the, their creations of material culture. Uh, architecture in the end uh, is not at all different uh, than other forms of expression, like um, literature, like poetry, like art. Uh, the difference is it's lived. Uh, so while many of the other uh, forms of expression uh, are individual um, and are received and accepted by a larger public, uh, architecture is never a product of uh, a single individual. The, the making of the built environment itself uh, includes many, many forces uh, so even if you have an individual who has a very strong will and can produce uh, certain forms, certain built forms, it's the action of the populace uh, that makes a difference in this case. Uh, it's also that uh, architecture, and I prefer to use the built environment, sometimes it includes uh, issues like uh, what is it that we can actually build with, uh, so it includes material. So in a sense, it is the arena in which many of these things uh, come together. It's also a product of many factors, which include a climate. Uh, it, it, it also includes the social relations of individuals under a great deal of scrutiny and criticism, I would say in the 80s. And a new approach that tried to understand architecture as a, a product of this larger context of the interaction of many of these forces came into being. In the past, when I studied architecture, uh, not only in Egypt, but even in, in, in the United States and in, in Europe, as it was studied back in the 50s, 60s, and even until the 70s, the approach was one where the focus was always on style. 
So you, you'd study buildings by understanding different styles, Gothic and Renaissance and, and modern, so on and so forth. That approach came, and, and in a sense, I'm one of the contributors to this approach. I certainly am not the only one. Maybe I'm one of the few who actually attempted to do, to do it with a focus on the countries of the global south and more specifically on the Middle East and Egypt. You bring Cairo in particular. It's, it's one of the focus foci of your, you have about four books on Cairo alone and you bring it to life. So you have this, uh, you started with the streets of Islamic Cairo in 1981, which was published by MIT, and Cairo Histories, which is another very, um, very important book. And I know that you say that, of course, there are many histories of your books <clears throat> and of your writings. Your current book is, or, or a book that you're working on, is Cairo, the Routledge Handbook on Histories, representations and discourses. Can you speak more to, the, to these books and especially to your current project? Yes, indeed. Uh, I'd be very glad to do so. It's always a pleasure to speak about a book that hasn't come out yet, uh, that is information, although I have to say, but to be able to answer your question, I, in a sense, have to put it in this in the context of your first question, which is why am I so interested in Cairo? My, my earlier interest in Cairo goes back to uh, the time in which I was a student at the University of Cairo. This is an edited volume that includes the, the who's who of Cairo scholarship. And our curriculum at the time was in, in the School of Engineering in the Department of Architecture, uh, which is still in Egypt part of engineering, unlike it is in other parts of the world. I had a very specific hypothesis because during the time that I was in Cairo, I would always visit uh, the area that we now talk about as Islamic Cairo or Fatimid Cairo, which is basically a small area, one kilometer by one and a half kilometers, was one that was geared much more towards uh, Western and European material. Uh, that, for example, the study of Cairo itself as a city was almost completely absent from my curriculum. Uh, I got interested in it, used to be surrounded by a wall, the wall of old Cairo itself, and much of it is, is relatively well-preserved. Uh, we decry, of course, some of the changes that have occurred to it lately, but uh, ironically, not so much during the time that I wasn't in, in, in Egypt and, and attending Cairo University, but when I went to MIT. Um, I had a very specific hypothesis because during the time that I was in Cairo, I would always visit uh, the area that we now talk about as Islamic Cairo or Fatimid Cairo which is basically a small area, one kilometer by one and a half kilometers, um, used to be surrounded by a wall, the wall of old Cairo itself. And much of it is, is relatively well-preserved. Uh, we decry, of course, some of the changes that have occurred to it lately, but um, uh, I, I would never forget uh, entering from Babzuela, walking this uh, mile until you get to Bab al-Fatuh. You encounter, somewhere between uh, 15 to 20 buildings that are in excellent condition. Uh, an excellent condition because many of them are actually uh, 800 years old and 600 years old and 500 years old. And they've undergone many restorations in the past, some of which are uh, were restored 500 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's fascinating because they are actually different styles. I got very interested in that. And, 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 and in fact, I decided that I want to understand why is it that this street is so attractive? 
Why is it that it functions so well? Um, and, and I remember when I actually uh, got a minor fellowship from MIT to go and spend the summer to study it, um, I met people who live in the street who were not only unaware of its history, but didn't really care for its buildings. They thought that this is the past. We're interested in the future. I, I was interested in the past because of the fact that I felt that there was something there that we can capitalize on as architectural designers today. Uh, and that was the, 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 the recognition that the placement of buildings in certain locations was done in such a sensitive manner uh, that I had not seen elsewhere. I had not seen in European architecture. I had not seen in modern architecture. So if, if you walk that street, you would be fascinated by the number of minarets and domes and their appearance on the street. Uh, they are always competing for your attention. They are placed in such a manner where they are vistas to different people from different streets that open into this major spine. Their proportions are so elegantly uh, made uh, in a manner that you always have to ask, uh, how come uh, that um, you know, they appear here? And uh, so for example, there are minutes that you can see if you walk the street from one direction, but you would never see if you walk the street from the other direction. And, and you ask why, why is that the case? Well, it was partly wayfinding. So the architects were aware of that. Partly it was the attempt to distinguish your building from everything else. And yet at the same time, contribute to the overall aesthetic scene uh, of the city itself. You know, 40 years ago now, they wanted to publish it. And I was very pleased because in a sense, it, it was my first book until a few of my friends, Nasser Abbat, so, so I ended up doing this book, which it was just a, a thesis. Uh, the Argacom program at MIT was recently established and uh, they decided after I finished it and after I graduate, but at the same time, I wanted to do other things. So I moved away from Cairo. I did not return to do anything on Cairo, still as the director of the Argacom program at MIT, Rini Bierman. From that, um, I was absolutely convinced that there's a lot to do on Cairo, who was then the chair of art history at UCLA, uh, and Tim Mitchell, and who um, was also then the director of the uh, Kavorkin Center at NYU. Uh, so here you had four people who were interested in Cairo, who've done work on Cairo, who are chairing Middle East centers and, and departments. Uh, and we all have an interest, uh, in this case, in the 19th century. Uh, we all use different kinds of maps to study the city. Uh, and we actually discovered that some of the maps that we use uh, are not necessarily maps uh, that, um, that are similar. We found that there's tremendous um, um, you know, variations in the maps. So for example, you actually find a building one time uh, to the east of a street. Um, and then you know, 50 years later in another map, it appears to the west of the street. So, I mean, that was, you know, fascinating for us. How, how, how is that the case? And so we decided to just have a symposium to compare our maps. And from it uh, emerged uh, a group, a research group that we called the Musser group after Egypt and Cairo being called Musser, as you know, uh, by many Kairians. Um, and we added members to the group, uh, um, you know, uh, different members to the group. Um, and in the process, we actually discovered that much of the work that the Comité de Conservation de Care, uh, which did much of its work in the 19th century, um, was really interested at times in preserving some buildings. And the way they went about doing that 
was in fact to often buy uh, a building uh, and move it, uh, disassemble it and move it uh, elsewhere. A practice that became later very common uh, in the 20th century in the heritage and conservations of buildings. Um, and, and, you know, basically that was, uh, you, can, you can argue my, my second book, it's an edited volume on Cairo. Then, then my third book is a book that I, um, as I told you earlier, I very much resisted doing. Um, it's called Cairo Histories of a City. And um, I got an invitation from Harvard University Press to, to do this book. Um, and I recognize that part of the reason that I got that invitation is uh, there has been a seminal book written by uh, uh, the eminent historian sociologist Janet Abulot back in 1970 that everybody was using. Um, and it became a bit outdated. Uh, I think they actually went to her and they asked her to do, to, to do a new book. Um, and that time she was retired and old and she decided, no, you should ask Nazar to do that book. Um, I have to say that I, I, I was very reluctant to do it and I actually kept saying no, uh, but they offered me a tremendous advance, uh, which, you know, as an academic, you never really get for a book. Yes. Um, and, uh, um, and, and in a sense, I ended up agreeing to do the book. Um, and I use this approach that I was talking to you about where uh, for me, uh, there isn't really a uh, single history of a city. When I first studied architecture at the University of Cairo, I studied from a book called um, The History of Architecture by Bannister Fletcher. And then when I went to MIT and then later to Berkeley, uh, I realized that there's no the history. There, there, there isn't a single history. Um, uh, I studied with uh, Spiro Kostov, who was uh, an eminent historian at the time. And he had also written a book called a history of architecture. So that's a difference that it's a history of architecture. Uh, the approach that I used in doing uh, Cairo histories of a city uh, was slightly different uh, because uh, I recognize that it's a history, but it's not uh, one history uh, and it's not my history. Uh, so I told um, the history of the city by looking at different historical periods to be more specific at uh, 12 historical periods. I decided to tell the history of uh, each period from one particular spot in the city, one square, one building, one space, one garden, and not to tell my history of it, but rather the history of someone who lived in that very specific uh, time. So in a sense, it is told uh, in my language, but it's about what someone like, for example, uh, Ibn Khaldun, uh, who had lived in Cairo, uh, during the time of the Baha'i Mamluks uh, and had, had worked as a major judge Qadi in the city itself and had documented a lot of those things. So, you know, I had to search for where did he live? What did he do? What was the city like during his time? Uh, and then I did the same, for example, for uh, uh, the Mamalik al the Burgi Mamluks using Maqrizi. Uh, I did the same for Cairo of the 19th century using Ali Mubarak. Um, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, so, so in a sense, the idea was to allow the residents of Cairo uh, and sometimes the visitors of Cairo uh, to, to sort of speak to what they saw uh, and let the, the, the reader uh, get an idea of the diverse views of the city itself. The, ironically, the book, uh, which I finished in 2010, uh, ends with a chapter about the Harrier Square and, um, and that, that was very interesting because um, I basically make fun of the name of the square because I ask, you know, Tahrir's liberation. 
and I said liberation from what? Is it liberation from, uh, you know, the British who were there for a good 70 years? Is it liberation from the forces of capital? Is it uh, the uh, Egyptians coming to terms with their own identity? Um, and uh, the book was released in January of 2011. <laughs> and Tahrir Square happened, you know, the Egyptian revolution happened. And, and I remember my publisher actually, you know, freaked out. She said, so what, what do you want to do? do should we do an errata? Should we, should we uh, change, uh, you know, this or... And I said, no, you know, the, 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 the book actually came out in 2011 and January. But if you look at the introduction, it has my signature uh, at the end of the preface in which I basically say, uh, I, I put the date, it was like October of, of, uh, of uh, uh, 2010. So in a sense, these events happened after, but, but Harvard then decided that what they want to do is to have me put something on their website uh, that explains what's happening in the square. Uh, and this was back in like February, March. So there was still a lot of activity around the square. And I did that. And, and uh, it was very successful because they had so many hits on the website uh, that the Washington Post approached me and the New York Times approached me. And I ended up actually writing for the New York Times something that was published in March of, uh, so after Mubarak stepped down of 2011, uh, which the New York Times changed its title to Cairo's Roundabout Revolution. Mm -hmm. It was a brilliant change of title, which I had not uh, envisioned. Um, and what they did was they gave, they took the entire last page of the, of the newspaper um, and they took my article uh, and they gave it to an artist who uh, brilliantly decided to use the space between the columns uh, to uh, illustrate what was happening in Tahrir Square. So you can actually see the space between the columns as if, uh, you still find it on the web, but it's very small, uh, as if in, in one of them, there are people coming, carrying banners and demonstrating. Then from the other one, there's tanks coming. And from the third one, there are like uh, donkeys and camels you know, because of what had happened in the square uh, in, in February. In reference to uh, the Arab Spring. Yes, exactly, yeah. in reference to the activities of the Arab Spring. So, so the book actually did extremely well. Um, and, and even though it's an academic book, it sold almost as if it's a popular book. Um, and I attribute it mainly to Tahrir Square and to the Egyptian Revolution and not to the power of the idea of, of uh, histories of a city. Uh, do all cities have different histories? Could you say the histories of New York, for example? Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. In fact, I think that um, uh, that's, the, that's the whole premise, at least, of what I do as an urban historian. Uh, my belief that uh, uh, history is always told uh, from the perspective of the present. And there is no history that is ever told without an intent. There is no pure history. There is no neutral history. Uh, it is always formed by uh, not only the intention of the historian, but by his or her upbringing, by their um, knowledge um, and, and exposure, uh, and not only to their discipline, but to other disciplines. And sometimes by the, uh, the availability or lack of, of archival material. Um, uh, so we have very different forms of, of, of also telling history, you know, um, oral history has become very important where you talk to people uh, before they die and you record something and it becomes a very valuable instrument for the future. Or even uh, sort of things like today there's what's called family history. Uh, family history allows you to tell the history of a city 
and the history of interaction of uh, people within the neighborhood mm -hmm. from the perspective of family documents, you know, letters that people wrote to each other, uh, tax documentation, uh, uh, records of birth and death and marriage certificates, so on and so forth. So there are ways by which to do that. And, and I have to say in Egypt, we have some amazing people who have pioneered, uh, you know, the, the, the telling of history using these different approaches. Uh, someone like Khaled Fahmi, for whom I actually consider to be the eminent historian of modern Egypt, both in the 19th and the 20th century, uh, because he has this capacity to use these different techniques uh, based on the story that he wants to tell. So yes, of course, there are uh, different histories. And, and I, you know, since you also raised that, part of the reason that I'm working on this uh, book, which hopefully comes out at the end of this year, called Cinematic Cairo, is precisely that. That, that I actually think that the city itself uh, has been documented and captured, uh, but also imagined because, you know, films have the capacity to project an image uh, that may not be there, uh, but it's in the mind of the director and it's in the script that is followed by the actors. Um, so- And it's uh, different from reality. Yeah, yes and no, yes and no, because uh, for me, um, and that's the reason that I, I started this project with a group of young scholars uh, in Cairo, um, I had written, uh, um, you know, somewhat extensively about film uh, and the con connection between cinema and the city in general. Uh, and my initial focus was actually on New York and London and, and Paris and Lisbon and it was not on Cairo whatsoever. Uh, and a lot of people uh, blame me for that. How can you be a Cairo expert and not having done that. And I have to say, I mean, in my defense, I lived for 42 years outside of Egypt. Uh, so I lost uh, contact with Egyptian films. And um, although I'm very familiar with what existed in the 60s and the 70s, everything else for me was a blur. So I had to re-educate myself. And this group that I put together and I worked with them for two years, uh, really educated me uh, about this time period. And it was a lot of fun to be able to, to understand that. So the premise of this book, uh, is that uh, if you want to understand the transformation of the city itself from a traditional city at the end of the 19th century to a modern city uh, by the end of the 20th century, cinema is one of the most important uh, instruments that would allow you to do that. Uh, but I'm also interested not simply in what was captured on film, but how different directors, uh, different authors at different times from the 1920s um, understood and projected an image to the city that ultimately impacted people's perception of the city. Uh, so I was just actually writing about this a few months ago. And, and, and uh, for me, the connection between what I call real Cairo, R-E-E-L, and real Cairo, R-E-A-L, um, uh, is not only strong, but it's also mutually constitutive. Uh, as in, there are many people whose knowledge of Cairo is only based on what they see on television and uh, in cinema, period. That is the Cairo for them. That is the Cairo that will always be uh, in their mind. Uh, and it's very interesting because again, we know from research that when people go to visit the city for the first time, they actually seek what they see or what they saw uh, in this virtual medium in, in cinema. So, so uh, Cinematic Cairo, which will be published by uh, the American University Press uh, at the end of this year, uh, is a book that is mainly focused on the changes that occurred in the representation and the imageability of the city uh, over almost a hundred year period from the 1920s with some of the earliest films 
all the way until I think the last film that we use in, is nine, is 2018. Um, uh, and it's by different people. Um, it is uh, periodized. So we have, you know, films from the 30s, films from the 40s, films from the 50s. We engage the politics of the time. Uh, we engage the themes that were present in, in Kyrian's social life uh, at the time. Uh, but we're also interested in the physical environment. What happened, you know? Uh, what happens when Cairo becomes a neoliberal city uh, in which capital not only dominates, but determines every single aspect of, uh, you know, movement and communication and transportation and wealth uh, and earnings and jobs, so on and so forth. So that's, the, that's basically the book uh, that will come out. The, the book that you asked me about, I have to say, is one of the most difficult books that I have ever engaged with. Uh, and I'll repeat its title again because it's a long title. Uh, it's called Cairo, the Routledge Handbook of Histories, uh, Representations, and Discourses. And you can see that it's divided into three parts. Uh, uh, each part takes uh, a theme that is really important. Um, so, for example, in the histories part, uh, we have um, uh, chapters that deal with the Fatimid city. We even have a chapter that deals with Cairo before Cairo uh, about uh, Fustat and uh, Al-Qutaya, two cities that existed in this area before Al-Qahira, uh, which became Cairo, was actually built. Uh, then we have chapters on, on the Mamluks, we have chapters on the Ottomans, we have chapter on Cairo of Muhammad Ali, we have chapters on Cairo of Gamal Abdel Nasser, uh, and we continue um, you know, with the idea of representations. Uh, here, what we're really trying to do is to understand how Cairo was discussed and narrated by different people. So there's uh, Cairo in popular sayings and proverbs. Uh, what is it that people said about Cairo itself? There's Cairo in, in songs and music. Uh, there's Cairo in uh, photographs. Uh, there's, there's Cairo in graffiti, the graffiti that was actually done uh, not only uh, during the revolution, but before uh, and after, and what does it really tell us uh, about the city? So that, that's the part. There's actually a chapter by me uh, on Cairo in cinema as well, which is in a sense very much inspired by the book that I just told you about. And then the last part uh, deals with contemporary discourses. Uh, you know, the issue of uh, will Cairo be Cairo if you're building a new administrative capital? Um, um, uh, the, the, the tremendous uh, uh, problems that exist in Cairo with regard to the informal sector area, as you know, which constitute about 70% uh, of the entire built fabric of the city. Can you? Can you remove them? Can you fix them? What, what, what do you do with them when they actually constitute the bulk of the urban fabric and many of which are not necessarily even upgradable uh, because of their location, because of their density, so on and so forth. Um, uh, but you know, there, there are lots of other things that are also engaged uh, in, in this uh, part uh, that uh, sort of uh, widen the scope uh, that it's also about what's happening in Cairo today uh, in terms of the music scene, what is happening in Cairo today, uh, in terms of the tourist scene, what's happening in Cairo today, in terms of the real estate development scene, so on and so forth. It's completely fascinating. Um, I mean, I would read that in a heartbeat. Um, I'm sorry, this was a long narrative, but I wanted to make sure that since no. you started with the streets of Islamic Cairo, that we end with this, which hopefully will be out by 2022. So You brought up some very important points, and I will get back to these, like the informal settlements and like the new administrative city. 
uh, that's being built outside of Cairo. But before we do that, I want to talk about the Nile, since we talked about Cairo, yes, I'd like to talk a little bit about the Nile itself. Yes. So, of course, rivers create civilizations. Yes. Um, they're always around a certain river. How has the course of the Nile changed over time and affected the architecture surrounding it? And of course, a second part to that question, which is a bit, uh, although related, but it's not entirely architectural, um, the Renaissance Dam. Yes. What do you think will happen? Well, um, you know, all, all Egyptians uh, are usually fascinated with the Nile. It's sort of part of life in, in, in Egypt. And, and when I actually did my book on the Nile, um, I think I was under the same kind of spell that most Egyptians are under. Um, there's that famous saying, I'm sure you know it, that you know whoever drinks from the water of the Nile will always get back to it. Absolutely. Uh, uh, despite the fact that many people today talk about the fact that the water of the Nile is no longer as pure as it used to be. In fact, sometimes the water of the Nile uh, is problematic. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and the irony is that people who say that, which is a fact, sometimes come under the the, the, the arm of the law and, and are prosecuted for, for uh, saying that. Um, and in, a, in addition to, of course, the current and the greatest threat uh, to Egypt, particularly that the water of the Nile may not be forthcoming as it used to be uh, in, the, in, 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 in the past, mainly because of the Grand Renaissance Dam that Ethiopia is building. Uh, setting some of these issues aside, I would still say that uh, um, it's really important to recognize, and I took that attitude in writing my, my, my book, uh, that Egypt is indeed the gift of the Nile, but the Nile is also the gift of Egypt. And it's the gift of Egypt because of the fact that without the Nile um, and um, you know, ancient Egyptian civilization would not have existed, but it's ancient Egyptian civilization, its use of the Nile that created the contemporary Egypt and that put the Nile on the map, on the map of important sites in the world, um, it is the thing that made the Nile so fascinating to many people. Mm -hmm. I have a chapter in the book uh, that talks about uh, how is it that um, discovering the source of the Nile had always fascinated people and rulers in particular from the time of ancient Egypt to, till the 19th century. Uh, hundreds, uh, maybe thousands of people lost their life trying to discover the source of the Nile. The discovery of the source of the Nile in the 19th century um, and this may take us to the Renaissance Dam as well, um, was as significant in the middle of the 19th century as the, uh, and, and in terms of world fascination, as the idea of traveling and landing on the moon in the middle of the 20th century. Mm. Uh, to the extent that when you see who funded what, so you, you find that the Royal Geographic Society of Britain, uh, the Germans, um, the Habsburg Empire, the French, uh, they all funded missions to discover the source of the Nile. And some of these missions actually came from the north and went down south and encountered major problems getting to the source of the Nile. Uh, others came from East Africa, from what is today Tanzania, and they uh, you know, moved west, if you will. Others came from West Africa and moved east. And, and uh, I found that fascinating. I ended up having to actually allocate an entire chapter in the book uh, to this particular topic. And I did that 
uh, because I realized there was a journal called the Journal for the Discovery of the Source of the Nile. This was an academic journal. Uh, and, and that academic journal was issued uh, with support of the uh, 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 Royal Society of, of, of the UK. Uh, and it continued to be issued <laughs> until the 1940s. So, so it's a journal that almost lasted for 80 or 90 years. And it had an issue once a year or once every two years, something like that. Why? Because every time someone discovered the source of the Nile, uh, someone else came and said, oh, no, but there's another source or there's uh, a different source and what have you. Of course, the notion of a source of the Nile uh, in and of itself is, is mythical because there is no river that has one single source. In fact, not just that, there isn't a single river that has not only one single source, they have many, many, many sources. Uh, one of the things that I do in the book is I actually have a map which I call the 99 sources of the Nile. And I know that 99 is not even accurate, uh, uh, but you can trace that. You can actually identify that there's water coming from here and from here and from here. And, and that's one of the things that, that uh, I focused on. And the reason is that when someone discovered, for example, uh, the, the, uh, the, 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 the most Southern source of the Nile, someone else came again and discovered the longest source of the Nile which is not necessarily the most Southern source of Nile. Then someone else came and discovered the highest source of the Nile in, in terms of elevation. Uh, so in fact, the latest discovery actually happened uh, during, um, during World War II. Uh, you have a, a German explorer by the name of uh, Waldecker, uh, who was a geographer uh, and a Jew, uh, escaping Nazi Germany, uh, ended up going to uh, uh, West uh, Africa um, by that time, we had known quite a bit about Lake Victoria. We had known quite a bit about Lake Nana, the two origins, if you will, of the Blue Nile and, and part of the White Nile. Um, and Waldecker uh, started his trek to sort of see uh, where he can, uh, you know, find the most, the longest source of the Nile. And actually, he did that uh, in the 1940s. Um, and uh, the site today is in the country called Burundi. Um, and it's very interesting because what he did was he built a pyramid there um, uh, almost as a tribute to this is where the Nile starts and this is where the Nile ends. Uh, but the, ironically, then later we, uh, someone else came in the 1990s um, and uh, with uh, some funding uh, from a number of geographic societies discovered another source of the Nile that makes the Nile longer and established it as the longest river in the world. Um, and, and this is in the country called Rwanda. So, so it's very interesting that you actually see, uh, you know, these, um, uh, uh, these differences. So, so going back to your question about how does it relate to cities, uh, the Nile was very important in bringing life to cities in the first place. Water is very essential, not only for agriculture, but for human survival. And um, 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 it, early on, um, you know, if we look, for example, at the cities that ancient Egyptians built, they had this love and fear relationship with the Nile. Love because they considered the Nile very important. They worshipped the Nile. There was a god for the Nile. Yet at the same time, they knew that the Nile can also be uncontrollable uh, and can create during the flood seasons uh, major damage, not only to crops, but to cities. Right. So, so cities managed to avoid uh, being close to them, they were close enough to the Nile, but but not too close, so as to suffer its damages uh, during the flood season. And and actually, that's a pattern that continued uh, all the way throughout uh, history until you know basically the 20th century, 
when the uh, old Aswan Dam was built and then the High Dam was built. Um, in fact, one can argue that it's only in the 20th century that the banks of the Nile as we know it today uh, in many parts of Egypt, but particularly in Cairo are so secure, they haven't changed. So we can actually see that the banks of the Nile um, you know, for, for almost hundred years are the same. That was absolutely not the case for the thousand years that preceded that, even in Cairo itself. Uh, even for example, during the time of Muhammad Ali or the time of Khidou uh, Ismail, uh, the area today, which is uh, Tahrir Square, uh, the Nile used to flood a considerable part of that area, totally flooded. Uh, and that's the reason that it remained green almost until uh, you know, um, the 1800s, until uh, 1820, 1830. Uh, it was not really anything. It was uh, agricultural land. Why? Because it was subject to flooding. And it's only finally with the construction uh, of the um, Aswan uh, Dam, the first Aswan Dam in uh, 1906, uh, that there was a degree of control that would guarantee that this area, uh, which was then later built, if you will, uh, into downtown Cairo uh, and was called Ismailia, then started to develop. And it started to get closer and closer and closer to the Nile uh, with uh, structures like uh, um, the Hilton Hotel, which is now uh, the Ritz-Carlton. Um, and um, it's very interesting because that site was the site of the British barracks uh, for, for since the 1890s, uh, since the British occupied Egypt. Um, so it's very interesting to sort of see how the Nile shaped cities. In the book, I have a map um, that show, that I did not produce, I took from the work of hydrologists who study the history of water, uh, that show exactly how the Nile moved sometimes to the east, but sometimes to the west, um, um, you know, over a long period of time. Uh, to the extent that the movement was substantial. It, it did not move uh, uh, maybe three to four kilometers uh, after floods uh, because the, the, the power of the water would actually carve a new path. And when the floods recede, um, there would be a different kind of Nile or a different channel. And that channel then becomes the bigger Nile and all of the others become the sort of the smaller canals coming out of it. So what do you think the, the dam is going to do then? Yes, the, the dam, there's, there's quite a lot of fear in Egypt about the dam. And I have to say it, it is definitely fully justified, uh, although slightly exaggerated. No one controls um, you know, water. Water is not completely controllable. Um, it's a product of rain much of the time. Uh, with climate change, uh, there, there is um, at the moment a drought in many parts of the world. And other parts of the world that uh, used to experience uh, some you know, rain and snow and what have you are actually having more of it. So climate change is not just simply global warming, it's global warming in certain parts of the world uh, and the opposite in other parts of the world. What is happening right now in Ethiopia is that we are not really sure of how the larger phenomena of global warming is gonna impact uh, the patterns by which uh, rains would fall and hence uh, will impact um, how much water uh, would flow down the Blue Nile. The Blue Nile is actually the source of about uh, 65% uh, to 70% of the water of the Nile. And uh, so, so Egypt particularly depends more, uh, as you know, there's the Blue Nile and the White Nile, they meet right north of uh, at Khartoum uh, and they continue all the way their journey, uh, a good maybe um, 
2,500 kilometers all the way to the Delta and to the Mediterranean. So Egypt, um, much more than any of the other countries, depends on the water that comes from the Blue Nile. Uh, the, the, the Ethiopian plan is to uh, build this Renaissance dam that will generate electricity for a very good reason. I mean, they have a rationale, which is they need to electrify their villages, villages that had, had no electricity quite uh, for a very long time now. Um, by the way, this is exactly the same argument that was used by Gamal Abdel Nasser uh, to build the uh, Aswan High Dam back in the 1960s and 70s. And he was absolutely right. I mean, he, he ended up having to do it politically by nationalizing the Suez Canal because he could not get international funding. But the, the real issue was he needed to industrialize, he needed to provide better uh, quality of life to Egyptian villagers. And, and that's what the Ethiopian government was trying to do. The conflict right now rests completely on uh, the rate by which the Ethiopians are going to start to fill the reservoir behind the great Renaissance dam. It's yep. no more than that. The Ethiopians are being inflexible because they believe uh, they have that right. Uh, they are also being inflexible because uh, they need to fill the reservoir to be able to generate that electricity. What Egypt and Sudan are simply asking for uh, is uh, to extend the time period for the filling of the reservoir, which would not allow the Ethiopians to generate enough electricity. Um, I, I do hope that that conflict will be resolved. It's very difficult to know where it is. Um, sometimes the saving grace is nature, uh, and that's actually what's happening in the first phase of, um, of filling the reservoir, because as you know, the, the dam is being built on phases. So uh, there's phase one, phase two, and phase three. Um, so when the Ethiopians built phase one, there was exactly the same kind of fear that exists today, but the amount of rainfall was so substantial uh, that the water in the reservoir uh, overcame the dam. So whatever, whatever water they stored, it was not sufficient. Uh, now, one of the things that is also happening uh, now is that they've built the second phase and they are starting uh, the, the, the filling of the dam, which in this case would mean uh, you know, not allowing water to go through until they reach that level. And that's where the danger lies. However, if the rainfall rate continues as it was last year uh, and the year before, uh, it will not be a great crisis. If global warming impacts the rainfall in Ethiopia in a negative way, as it has in other countries around the world, uh, then Egypt would definitely have a problem. The estimates is that it would lose a good 20% uh, of its, uh, of its uh, arable lands, agricultural land. Um, again, all of them are estimates because as I said, it completely depends on what will happen uh, rainfall wise. It also depends on whether Egypt and Ethiopia reach an agreement. Uh, it also depends to a great extent. And I have to say that that's the saving grace in the Egyptian case. Uh, on the reservoir that is behind uh, the Aswan High Dam, Lake Nasser, because Lake Nasser will absolutely sustain all of the Egyptian needs for the next three years. Uh, the Egyptians are worried beyond the three years and they're absolutely right to do so. What about the informal settlements? So you, you mentioned them in, in passing. It is an, an international phenomenon. Yes. What is the solution to it in Egypt in particular? I mean, in general, but in Egypt in particular, because what Egypt has been doing recently is just demolishing some of these yes. uh, settlements and moving people somewhere else. Um, yes, uh, you know, and, and it's very interesting because I think actually the attitude of the Egyptian government towards 
the, the Ashwaiya, the informal settlement areas, uh, uh, is not independent of the current attitude uh, of the government and the current prime minister specifically, who happens to be an architect planner, uh, towards the notion of building in the desert and building new things and building new communities. After all, he was the, the, the director or the chair of um, um, an organization called the uh, Organization uh, of New Communities, the National Organization of New Communities. Mm. Um, so, so I think the two are very much tied. Uh, what to do with the informal settlements is a $6 million question. And it is so because uh, th this is not only a very difficult question, and it's not only uh, an issue or a problem that Egypt is facing, but many other uh, parts of the world are facing. Uh, the solution to it uh, is not uh, and cannot be universal. There isn't a, an approach of, oh, let's demolish and just move people elsewhere. Uh, why? Because this was tried in many other parts of the world and completely failed. It was total mm -hmm. failure. Uh, I, you know, I'm sure that many planners in Egypt know that. So why is it that they're still engaged in this? I think the engagement in this is purely political. Uh, it, uh, you know, you have a leader who has um, decided that he will eradicate informal settlements. Uh, without a full understanding of what informal settlements actually are. Informal settlements is what people build on their own without uh, um, abiding by building codes, without building in the proper manner, uh, without getting a permit, uh, building it on agricultural land. So there's a lot of negative stuff here. But the most important aspect of this is that many of these people had no other alternative. It's not like, oh, they did that because they wanted to violate the law, or they did that because uh, they have no respect for the law. In fact, if anything, Egyptians always want to stay within the confines of the law. It's just that they violate it whenever it is that they discover they can't. They can't even survive, uh, you know, within it. Um, and 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 as such, I think it's very unwise that the current policy of the government is uh, eradication of informal settlement area. They cannot do it. It's just they cannot do it. They cannot do it in the lifetime of the current regime. Definitely. Um, so. Uh, what is a better approach? A better approach is what has been tried in many parts of the world, in places like Brazil, for example, where uh, you upgrade settlements that can be upgraded. Not all settlements can be, but you upgrade. And, and in Brazil, you know, there's upgrading of settlements that exist even on, on mountaintops, on hills, uh, which are very difficult to bring uh, electricity to, very difficult to bring uh, sewage and water and what have you. Uh, uh, in Egypt, I think that the major, major issue in the upgrading of informal settlements, and unfortunately, few people have written about that, uh, because it is, an, uh, from an urban perspective, urban policy perspective, it's not only that it's an unsolvable, unsolvable problem, it's a problem that gets you as a planner very depressed, because your hands are tied. So what do you do with structures that are, um, you know, eight and nine stories high, that don't have elevators, that... Um, overlook streets uh, that are only two meters wide, uh, very unhealthy conditions, um, very crowded conditions, dense, density-wise, uh, no air that comes into these units, no sun that comes in, into these units. Uh, so, so the natural instinct of a planner and of even a public health official is that you have to demolish these. But then what do you do with these people? The numbers uh, of people that you have to deal with is, is amazing. Had Egypt invested the money that it invested in the building of the new capital to build settlements for these people, I can understand. They actually have built quite a lot. Um, but uh, at the same time, uh, the state now has become almost like a, a developer, a real estate developer. Uh, the state is building housing. 
uh, with uh, and in cooperation with development developers, multi multinational developers at times, uh, mainly for a different class of people, for those who can afford to buy these expensive uh, units, uh, the, the upper classes, the elite, and even the uh, I would say the upper middle classes, uh, those who have worked in the Gulf for twenty years and can afford to now buy something uh, in one of these gated communities. Uh, so had the government invested this money. Um, Perhaps, perhaps there would have been a possibility of uh, saying, okay, we're going to accommodate one third of all of the people who live in informal settlements and we will demolish them. Now, mind you, there's a number of informal settlements today that exist on land that is very valuable, very valuable. Why? Because the city grew around it and these areas yeah. now are in the middle of, of the urban area. I'll give you two examples that most Egyptians know and, and some of the international experts may know as well. Uh, the Mesquite, Mespio Triangle yeah. uh, and the island of Warat, Vizieta Warat. Uh, both of these were, you know, old settlements, uh, informal. They, you know, one was agricultural land that was taken over over time and, and now houses thousands of people in the island. The other one was actually an area that was uh, formal. So it's not exactly informal. It's a formal area, but over time uh, it got uh, densified and became like a slum. So there is a difference actually between the two areas, but the government considers them both Ashwaiya, which is interesting because legally they're not. Legally they're not. Uh, so the attitude of the government, okay, we're gonna remove people from these areas. We're gonna move them to, to, to uh, other areas like uh, the, the, the neighborhood that they called Hayal Asmat, uh, which is you know, nicely designed, but at the same time, it's no different at all than the public housing that we have seen built during Nasser's time. Uh, that completely collapsed over time and where the quality of the units became so bad that the government had to give them up. The government ultimately uh, gave them for almost for nothing to the people who lived in them. They, they made them owners of it, which I actually applaud because they could not have maintained them anymore. So at least allow those who live in them to maintain them. So, so I, don't, I cannot, as someone who's actually spent a good deal of my professional life studying uh, informal settlements and wrote a book about it, I do not have a single solution. I actually think that the solution lies in this case in, in uh, a case-by-case -case basis, in being able to map the informal settlements, being able to designate which of them can be saved and which cannot be saved. Uh, the blanket statement that they all cannot be saved is ridiculous. Uh, in recognizing, of course, at times um, that the market also has its demands. So um, um, I, I fear that uh, the residents of, uh, the Maspio Triangle, for example, um, they may have been given units slightly better than what they lived in. And some of them, in fact, opted to take the, the financial compensation instead, which is good. Uh, but um, my concern is you go and put them, you know, uh, uh, you know in some uh, distant uh, satellite community, uh, which is, uh, you know, 30, 40 kilometers from where they used to have jobs and, and had economic activity, you're, you're also, uh, cutting their possibilities of, of income earning. And, and, and these are, they're, they're not even middle-class people. Some of them are poor people. Uh, so so I, I think a lot more thought should go into that. At the moment, we have a regime that is intent on, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do it this way. Uh, sometimes this works, but in the context of a country like Egypt, where uh, individuals uh, have always found other ways to deal with these situations and to exist outside of the law, I don't think it will.
we have a flurry of building bridges crisscrossing all of Egypt, actually all of Cairo in, in particular. Are bridges the solution? Yes, uh, this is a phenomenon that I've seen the last time I actually was in Egypt. And again, the bridges, and they're not really bridges, we call them bridges um, in, in, in Egypt, but in reality, all over the world, they're just simply called overpass. It's, it's not like we are crossing a, 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 an edge of a city, we're crossing a river or some natural, we're just simply, um, uh, you know, deciding to uh, re-traffic the, the area uh, by uh, creating passageways that allow cars to travel, you know, more easily. And it's very interesting because, again, when you think about it here, the privilege is given to the car. So people who drive cars are the ones who are benefiting from this. Who are the losers? The losers are pedestrians. The losers are people who live in the neighborhoods in which these overpass have actually been, been built. The mentality that created the overpass to solve a traffic problem is exactly the same mentality that decided we're going to eradicate all informal settlements and build housing instead. It's, it's exactly the same mentality. It's a, um, it's a uh, uh, you can argue it's an authoritarian mentality. It's a military mentality. Um, and it happens, you know, it happens. And it has happened even in Europe. Uh, I mean, Paris uh, that we admire so much was actually almost a product uh, of a period uh, of that sort. It was a crowded city. Uh, Baron Osman under Napoleon III uh, was given the mandate uh, to facilitate the movement of traffic. Uh, and he came and he cut major boulevards into the city in a thoughtful way, but it was still major boulevards. Um, and many people were displaced. Many people were removed from these properties. Uh, but then when you look at it today, you know, uh, Place de la Concorde, Place de l'Etoile, all of these were a product of that very specific time that sort of carved uh, into the old city and created the, the, the great city that we all enjoy today. Oh, that, unfortunately, that is not happening in Egypt right yeah, now. I was not at all. Uh, so maybe it will be a new Paris. <laughs> no, it, it won't. I mean, that's the, the government claims that, but, but uh, um, and, and again, this, this has to do with uh, not actually understanding the lessons of urban history or the history of urban design. Um, uh, so the focus here is on traffic. Uh, Baron Osman's focus was on creating a new city in which its different nodes are connected to each other, not only physically, uh, although I have to say, again, uh, as a historian, I, I, I have to uh, take that into account, that all of these changes happened in Paris after there was a revolt in which ordinary people took over the city. Mm -hmm. And Paris was actually a commune, a commune uh, that was a Republican, uh, that was totally against the monarchy, um, and a commune in which people were militant to defend their right to be in control. There is no king anymore. Um, when this entire system collapsed, the commune of Paris collapsed, the idea of the new regime, which after a while declared itself a, a monarchy, uh, again, Napoleon III decided he's an emperor, again, uh, was okay, we wanna make sure that this doesn't happen. So how do you make sure that it doesn't happen? You carve these big streets so that uh, armaments and uh, military forces can easily access these neighborhoods and control them immediately. So you don't have to engage in the battles that occurred in Paris uh, between the, the forces of the monarchy, uh, the monarchists and the Republicans, uh, which lasted for years. And in a sense, Paris was barricaded uh, and ultimately the Republicans lost. But as we know, ultimately the Republicans won and Paris and, and France became a republic 
after several times of you know going back to being a monarchy. So so I don't know. I I think that there is a degree of frivolity in the building of these overpass. Um, and unfortunately, as you probably know, accidents have increased as a result of it. Uh, pedestrians have a, a hell of a time. As an urbanist, I look at this and I say, okay, well, we have to wait for 20 years and see uh, what this has done. Um, because at the moment, their immediate impact is not positive at all. In fact, it's negative. In your book, uh, Cities and Caliphs, which um, I remember I read it when it first came out and I had reviewed it uh, for you in the uh, Ahram Weekly. Yes. At the time. Yes. Long time ago. Yes. <laughs> um, you said that building cities cannot be separated from the caliph or the ruler. Yes. And they are basically shaped by the the caliph and the ruler's perspectives. Um, this happened, of course, we saw this more recently in Egypt in, first of all, is it, is it an international phenomenon? I mean, we saw it in Egypt with Sadat and Mubarak, every one of them built, you know, Sadat city, Mubarak built yes. other cities. They, they, everybody wants to, um, build their own cities. Now we see it in the administrative city on a, on a much larger scale with the highest uh, cathedral and the highest mosque and the biggest and largest and tallest and things yes. like that. Is it a local phenomenon? No, it, it definitely is not. Uh, I think that the notion that uh, people in power um, either because uh, they are visionaries or because they want to leave a legacy or well, because they're, they think well, they are visionaries. Yeah, but yeah, I understand that. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not necessarily speaking about a particular individual here, but in any case, uh, or, or because there is actually a need. Um, uh, it's very interesting because I actually think that um, the notion of needing a new administrative capital uh, is not something that uh, anybody in Egypt, um, that many planners in Egypt would disagree with. The question is not whether you build, and, and, and uh, it's very interesting because initially it was actually called the new administrative capital. Now everybody's calling it the new capital, uh, which, which cannot be because the Egyptian constitution insists that Cairo is the capital. So, so I don't know how they're gonna resolve that. Maybe they're gonna uh, extend the urban cordon of Cairo to include it. Uh, or maybe they're just going to call it uh, New Cairo or something like that. But, but you know, the, the phenomena itself that you're talking about um, uh, is as old as time. Um, each ruler, each king, each emperor, uh, sometimes each president comes in and decides to build, um, you know, this, this thing because it's needed. Um, actually, it happened partly during Nasser's time. Uh, and this was the first time that this really happened because Cairo was getting very congested, particularly in the 50s and the 60s, and his approach was uh, uh, to 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 um, to build uh, a new government com uh, complexes that had not existed, uh, like for example, Katmas uh, al Merkazi al or the Ministry of Planning. Uh, these were uh, uh, basically governmental functions that had not existed at all in Egypt before. 
So if you look at it from that historical perspective, during Nasser's time, many ministries stayed in their old location, uh, like for example, the Ministry of, of Interior, was and others were actually, because they're new functions, they were built in this new area, which was called uh, Madinat Nasr. Um, and and uh, in that area, uh, there was a planning technique. There was something that was designed there uh, to make it the new area. It was actually quite successful in the 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it was also the, the if you if you will the natural expansion of the city, because Cairo itself starts with a very small um, Byzantine uh, Roman fort, um, and you know over time that fort expands. So much of Coptic Cairo existed around that fort, um, and with the arrival of the Arabs, then you have Al Fustat, and then you have Al Askar, and then you have Al Qutaya, and then you have Al Qahir, which is Cairo. And then you have what actually continues to be built northeast of that. So in a sense, the, the, the new administrative capital, NAC, as many researchers call it now, uh, capital itself is located in an area uh, that uh, is, is not northeast. It's in fact real east. And it is much more connected to the road that is going to Suez and to Ain to, Sukhna. Uh, uh, What's very interesting, as you know, is that they decided that they were going to build this highway speed rail uh, between um, between Alamin all the way uh, on the, to 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 uh, to Ain Sukhna, passing by the new administrative capital. Yeah, uh, a, a very strange project. Um, yet at the same time, in a very interesting way, from a planning perspective, it assumes that there is no country, and that the country is constituted of these two growth poles, as they're called, and that everyone is going to move to them. And the transportation between them would be so important and essential. And it's very interesting because that road is designed in such a way where you actually have like four stops. There is a stop in Alamin, there is a stop in Al Ain Sukhna, there is a stop in the administrative capital, and there's a stop outside of Cairo because the idea is to even avoid Cairo altogether as if it does not exist. The outside of Cairo is for people who live there to go there so as to go there. So, so it, it, it's, it's really weird uh, that uh, the location was chosen, the location also, like unfortunately, many other cities in the desert, uh, and David Sims has written nicely about that. Um, uh, it's not necessarily a site that has access to water. Uh, it's not necessarily a site that has access to, uh, you know, famous heritage sites. Uh, it's not necessarily a site that has fantastic climate. Uh, it's a site that exists uh, where there's um, also a major Magarat uh, Yul um, um, that will. That, that will create puddles of water if it rains. Um, yeah, and, and so, so, but the advantage of the site is that it's a, it's a tabula rasa. It's a blank site where you can do anything and you can do everything. And that's the reason that they had that, you know, uh, if you don't pay money to get the land, uh, that is a major, you know, how will it get water? How will it get water? I yes, well, at, at the moment, at the moment, that is not a completely resolved issue. It, it's at the moment, it's getting water from the Nile because that's that's what you need. Right. Uh, in the future, it will have to definitely get water from uh, distillation plants, water distillation plants uh, on the Red Sea. Um, that's uh, or in the uh, Gulf of Suez. I cannot imagine that it will. Um, and again, you know, there are many cities in the Gulf that are like that. Uh, it's just that Egypt was not a country that depended so much on that. But unfortunately it has to uh, because of the Grand Renaissance Dam, 
um, I think it's actually very wise for the Egyptian government to make sure that all of the cities that on the Mediterranean, mm-hmm. on the Red Sea and on the Suez Canal, including in this case, the new administrative capital, uh, that all, all, all of these completely depend on water distilled uh, from salty water of the Mediterranean or of the Red Sea. Um, and, and because the water that actually is coming from the Nile, uh, even uh, if you assume that you'll have a very good deal with Ethiopia, would be rarely sufficient uh, to feed and to, to, to at least quench the, uh, quench the thirst of Egyptians who live in the Nile Valley and the Nile, uh, um, and the Nile Delta. So, so th- that's not a bad thing that uh, they have to, they are planning this, I think. Uh, now, with regard to that it has the biggest or the tallest, uh, you know, mosque or, um, again, and, and this is an example I gave you, I cannot, as an urban historian, I can tell you uh, lessons from history that may have a future impact, but I cannot predict right. what will happen. So, so the example that I often use uh, in, a, in a strange way that allowed people who want to defend the capital take it out of my context and they use it to s- support their own is look look at the country like uh, look at a city like St. Petersburg uh, built by Peter the Great in the worst possible site in Russia because of a complex that Peter the Great himself had that he didn't really think uh, the Europeans considered him European enough so he wanted to move the capital to the closest part of Europe uh, he chose a site that is very inappropriate that is very cold all year round that is uh, again full of uh, um, you know, water uh, much of the year. Um, and he built it in such a manner uh, where he really forced the majority of the elite of Russia to build there. And the city for the first maybe uh, 100 years or so, 80 to 100 years, that never picked up. It only picked up, it became important after it was established and because of other political reasons that occurred uh, in uh, Russia, in which Moscow as a capital lost its importance and its power. Um, and St. Petersburg had to serve this function. And so again, it's a city of very interesting history because as you know, um, for much of my childhood, it wasn't called St. Petersburg, it was called Leningrad. Um, And and then, you know, it changed again after the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union and it regained its name. Today, St. Petersburg is the most visited city in, uh, in, in, in all of Russia and a beautiful city, no doubt. Uh, perhaps the new administrative capital over two, three hundred years is going to be like that. It requires a lot. It requires maintenance. It requires uh, vision. It requires um, better planning at this time, not in the future. Uh, we'll see. This was the way Sadat envisioned his own city when he built the Sadat city. And then he was assassinated and the person following him Mubarak did not continue that project, which is why the project died. The point is, if this new capital is not finished pretty soon, when this president is there, uh, the person coming after him will just ignore it and all this money is going to go to waste. That's very possible. Um, And in fact, you know, many people have actually written about the new capital uh, new administrative capital simply as a, uh, a ghost town uh, or that as a town that would be a ghost town like happened with Asha Ramadan, tens of Ramadan city or with uh, Sadat. But I make a distinction because when Sadat actually 
uh, established uh, or, or, or had the idea of Sadat City. Uh, it wasn't called after his name because he wanted it. It actually uh, emerged from a very specific planning paradigm at the time. Um, and the notion was that it was not going to be uh, a new capital. It was never announced as a new capital. No. It was going to be a place where uh, some of the functionaries of the ministries that do not require to be in Egypt are going to be there. In fact, if you visit the city today, you'll actually find signs until today which designated this is going to be for the Ministry of Education, this is for the Ministry of, of Public Works. And, um, but the idea here was that some functions don't have to exist in Cairo itself, which, which was right. Um, uh, and I'm not really sure that Sadat City failed simply because Mubarak came to power. Um, I wouldn't attribute its failure to that. I would attribute its failure, and it has failed, and uh, Asha Ramadan's uh, tens uh, of Ramadan, um, to a totally different phenomena, that Egypt had contradictory urban policies exactly at the same time. In fact, the first paper I ever wrote uh, as a scholar uh, when I was still a student at MIT um, was a paper that looked at um, the, and this was in the late 70s, early 80s, because what Sadat had put in place initially right after the 73 war um, and with the peace treaty is the notion that Cairo has become too big and you need to uh, decentralize. Right. So they came up with three cities. Each was supposed to have in 10 years, a million people. Uh, 10th of Ramadan, uh, Al-Amriya, which is next to Alexandria, which is now called something else, and, um, uh, and uh, Sadat City. Uh, they started these projects. They were very well planned. In fact, I would argue that uh, these three towns, uh, two of them at least, uh, maybe even slightly better planned than the new administrative capital. Uh, because they involved international consortiums. There was uh, amazing feasibility studies done. There was studies about where water is gonna come from. There were studies about where labor is gonna come from. There were studies about what kind of industry will occur in each, which function will actually be in each. It was not just a single authoritarian uh, decision uh, that was meant to, uh, we need to move people elsewhere uh, and we need to have a new capital. Um, but at the same time, uh, and in the late 70s, early 80s, um, and unfortunately, that's the policy that continued under Mubarak. So here's where your statement may be partly true. Uh, um, there was this adoption of a different policy, which is satellite cities. Mm -hmm. Satellite cities that are supposed to be bedroom communities uh, to um, uh, address the demand for housing in Cairo, uh, outside of Cairo, but very close to Cairo. So the two policies are contradictory. Are you encouraging people to move 100 and 200 kilometers away, or are you putting something that is 20 kilometers away? The policy of the satellite uh, bedroom communities around Cairo, which in this case included Sitt October, uh, Shu, Qahira uh, Gedida, killed, killed, totally killed the policy of new towns away from Cairo, killed it. So, so I would say that the failure of Sadat City um, was more a product of the contradictory nature of urban decisions in Egypt. Uh, by the way, that contradiction still exists today, as I just told you, which is uh, the, the notion that you are going to, uh, you know, demolish, uh, you know, Ashwaiyat, demolish informal settlements uh, and move people, uh, you know, away. Uh, but at the same time, you are still creating concentration because you are taking these areas and building extremely dense sites, but for the upper crust of Egyptian society and for developers from abroad. So you're not like... Uh, 
solving the major problem that exists in Cairo, which is it's a city, it's one of the highest densities, residential densities in the world. It's a city that has the least um, agriculture, uh, has the least green area per capita. So the least that you could do is, yes, remove these settlements, but turn them into parks, because that's what is really needed uh, if you care for the human beings who live in the city itself. Dr. Nazar Sayed, renowned architect, planner, teacher, historian, and a lot of other things. An artist, I should mention artist as well. You paint. Uh, uh, a little bit. No, a lot. <laughs> yes, but I paint buildings only. I, I want to make sure that people understand that because a lot of people talk to me now thinking I'm a painter. I am an architectural renderer. I learned these techniques at Cairo University using mechanical drawing systems, and I still enjoy doing it. So I paint buildings, uh, I, enjoy, I, I, I render buildings. They're brilliant, and I have the, the pleasure of having two of them hanging in my house. So, um, and they're, of course, about Cairo. Uh, thank you very much. This was a um, delightful interview. Thank you, my dear. It's a pleasure to be with you.